Okay, we're off and running. Now, when we talk about these sort of three worldviews, we're going to start with pre-modernism or pre-modernity. And this goes back really before the Enlightenment. And, and on these, I've, I've kind of decided to talk about the, these three areas on all these realms. What, first about just the idea of truth. You know, can we know truth? Where does it come from? And in pre-modern times, you know, back before the 1600s, you know, we generally agreed that, that we can't, there is truth, there is real truth. We talked last week about Augustine and the book of nature and the book of God. And that we find that truth in God and sacred writings. Uh, although I should mention, there, there is a lot of, uh, as we approach this transition, there's a lot of people looking in to, to natural causes for phenomena and trying to understand things other than just saying it's that way because God made it that way or it's God's will. There are people looking at natural causes, but it wasn't widely accepted. And the real, the real authority was the church. The church kind of controlled everything. Remember, this is a time when most people can't read. They're illiterate. Uh, and the church kind of runs the show. There, there are kings and princes as well, but those people in the church are calling the shots, and really the, the church is trying to, to run the whole show pretty much. So this is what's going on, and then we, we kind of, uh, since this is a science, I'm going to talk about these transitions a lot in terms of the science around them, but there are other things going on well, as we'll mention. But what did people believe the universe was like? Well, they believe, first of all, uh, this come, uh, a lot of these ideas, are, some are biblical, but a lot are, are date to Aristotle, so they're Aristotelian as well. The idea is there, here's the earth at the center, and the moon goes around it. There's Venus and the sun and the planets all go around, and they roll around on these crystal spheres. So that was a lot of the Ptolemaic view. And uh, if you know about, think about astronomy, you know occasionally... When you look at a planet against the stars, it moves, and all of a sudden it kind of appears to go backwards when you're looking. And so they introduced this idea of epicycles, that not only did the planets go around the Earth, but they kind of rotated around like that as they went. And uh, they had to introduce that to be able to calculate positions, and as we'll see, talk about quite a bit this morning, people were really into this to calculate horoscopes. Uh, we'll talk about Kepler. Kepler... Kepler had a lot of trouble getting paid. <laughs> the, the guys who employed him didn't pay too well, and so he, he did a lot of horoscopes on the side to, to help uh, get himself through life. So why, why, did, why would people believe in a solar system like that? Well, there are first some scriptural reasons. Back in the book of Joshua, the sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since. So that's telling us the sun's moving across there, right? And we look at Psalms, the earth, you set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be shaken. The world is firmly established, it shall never be moved. And people read these passages. They said, well, God says it. Turns out also, you feel like you're moving? We know what motion feels like, right? Uh, when we're out in a car, if you, you know, Kid, I don't know if parents let their kids stick their hands out the window. I'm sure they don't let them stick their heads out the window anymore, but like I used to do. But we don't have any, there's no sensation of motion. And you're telling me this earth is whizzing around through space? Well, I don't think so. 
And then the other one, I think, is we all. There's a, I think we're at the center of the universe. Uh, I could talk about this and heresies, but, but th- this was the dominant world system. And again, there was a great uh, volume called The Alma Geist that had been written by Ptolemy that talked about this and was highly respected. So, how does all this get changed? Well, we're talking about a really a time of incredible transition, and, and I use the term tumultuous. A lot's going on right about the time this transition takes place. In the ancient world, it worked for them. Oh, yeah. There were, and, and there were people who cast horoscopes using the Ptolemaic system and got fairly accurate results for predicting where the planets were when you were born and all this stuff. So, it, it, I mean, the, the math actually worked. It was cumbersome, but it worked. The printing press, huge, huge change in the world. You know, before, books all had to be copied by hand. Erasmus the, Erasmus, the great humanist, is born around 1466, 1492. We all think about Columbus. What did they think about in Europe, though? The big news in Europe was what was called the Reconquista. The whole Iberian Peninsula had been conquered by the Muslims about 800 A.D. So for almost 800 years, the Islam had controlled the Iberian Peninsula, or most of it. It was in 1492 that finally Spain drove the Moors away. So the Reconquista, big deal. 1517, the Theses, Luther. Henry VIII establishes the Church of England, the English Bible. Copernicus in 1543 publishes what I'm going to call De Rev, because it's easier to say. Galileo in 1610 gets his telescope, and we'll talk more about that. And in 1618, Kepler publishes his three laws. All these things are leading to upheaval. And and there's a huge change that goes on. in my research, these are a lot of people think maybe the, th- the biggest thing. Humanism brings about a huge change. There's much more interest in the classical period. New manuscripts are discovered and read. The printing press, obviously. The voyages of discovery, Columbus, all the others, that show there's a new world out there. There are new, new, new things. And of course, the Protestant Reformation. Now, the, church, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't run the world. And for the people we'll be talking about, for Kepler, for instance, he was a Protestant, and Germany was in this crazy system where the, uh, and I wish, I wish I could remember the Latin term, but the idea was the print, whatever the prince of your region is, you're going to be that too. So if the prince of your region is a Lutheran, and everybody is a Lutheran, and he dies off, and his son comes up, and he decides he's a Catholic, guess what? We're all Catholics now. So it, it was kind of a, it was, it was a different world. So these are the big things. But like I said, I'm going to talk about sort of the evolution of cosmology and how the church was involved. What, did, what role did the church play? How did the church deal with these changes? Because we, we get sometimes, I think, a skewed picture. I'm going to talk about four figures, Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, Kepler and Galileo. So, we'll start with Nicholas Copernicus. Uh, you see the date? Did I put his dates up there? Nope. I'm sorry. Anyway, I don't remember. <laughs> but, but he was the oldest of the, these guys. 
he was educated in canon law and medicine. Canon law was church law. So he was, his job was he, was he was to enforce the law in a church. He was named Canon in Frauenberg in 1497. He started this conception of De Rev. The idea was in 1515 and pretty much had his universe defined. But it didn't get published until 1543. And a lot of churchmen were behind the publication. They said, this, we need to get this out there. This is important. So it wasn't like he was opposed by the church. Uh, and how, the story of its publication, he turned it over to a friend who's at a university. Well, he changed universities and let it drop. So anyway, it finally gets published. And his friend Osiander writes a preface for the book, doesn't sign it. So it appears that preface is written by Kepler. And it says, well, this is all just hypothetical. And that probably helped to get published. Kepler has a stroke in 1542, and the book was published with it just a few days before he died in 1543. Uh, it's believed that he may have seen a pic copy of the book. He may not have been aware of it. His, his stroke is pretty serious. But the interesting thing is, when this book comes out, remember, we got a lot of people doing horoscopes in there. I mean, they're, they're not just writing today is, you know, good day for meeting friends. They're actually want to know the star positions, the planet positions. And they say, boy, this, this is a lot easier to do the calculations than the Ptolemaean system. So we're going to use this. We don't care. And we'll talk a little bit more about realism and instrumentalism later. They said, it's, we're going to use this just as an instrument. We don't necessarily believe it. And if you're like me, if it makes my job easier, I'm going to do it. That's, you know, why not? If it, makes, you know, it works. We don't, we don't worry if it's real or not. We'll just use it. So they start using Copernicus' system. Okay, next guy is Tycho Brahe. Tycho is, he's not that big a deal, but I love talking about Tycho. <laughs> he was the last of the great naked eye astronomers. He didn't use a telescope. He made very precise measurements. And this, this picture is an example of an early Photoshop. Anybody know why? There we go. He had a brass nose. And when I was preparing this class, I thought, no, his nose was silver. I, I'm sure I knew I'd read his. Turns out they dug him up in 2010. And the, the, the silver nose I'd read about turns out to have been brass. <laughs> so he lost it in a duel or a sword fight. He was drunk and got in, in a fight with another guy over who was the best mathematician. Cut his nose off. So again, they kind of photoshopped. You can find pictures of him that show the, the, the brass nose better. And the final thing, anybody remember how, how he died? The story is he was at a party and had drunk quite a bit. And rather than commit the social error of leaving and going to the bathroom, he held it until his bladder, blur, bladder burst and died a week later of infection. So you gotta, you gotta love this guy. He's, but he made some significant observations. This is kind of the equipment you can imagine he would have used, not a telescope, but very you know, gradated observational equipment that would let him find the position of a star planet very accurately. So what did he do? That we're starting here to upset the, the common notions. First, he saw a nova, a new star. Well, Aristotle had told people the heavens are unchanging. There, there's no changing in the heavens. Well, here's this. 
Next thing, he, he, he started noticing some comets, and he plotted their paths and was able to determine that they crossed the orbit of Mars. Remember, we showed that picture with the sphere. Well, how can it go through that sphere? So, this idea of planetary spheres. But, notice, he, he was not a Copernican. He said, that's, that's ridiculous. It violates scripture and it's absurd. Again, I don't feel like I'm moving. So he never accepted Copernicanism. So he did what all scientists do. They drew up his own model. So he said, the moon rotates around the earth and the sun rotates around the earth, but all the other planets rotate around the sun. Yeah, so anyway. So everybody comes up with their own ideas. That was Tycho's idea. So he started, he's one of the guys who kind of got the ball rolling then we go to my guy, Kepler. Kepler studies theology and philosophy at Tübingen. He's getting ready to graduate, and he's already showing signs that the theologians think, this, we don't want to send this guy to a church. <laughs> he, he wrote a paper about what, what it would look like if there were men on the moon and they looked back at Earth, and this, this really bothered the faculty. They said, Let's, we, don't want to, we don't want to send this guy to a church. Let's send him to the university where he can't do any harm. So they send him to Graz and, he, and, and say, oh, by the way, you've studied theology. Like, there's Josh that studied doing his dissertation in church history. What are you going to do if they say, oh, we're going to send you to uh, LSU and you're going to teach astronomy. <laughs> but this is a time when, when people were, had broad interest. There, weren't, there wasn't so much specialization. So... Kepler had studied math. He had studied astronomy as part of his theology education and general philosophy. So he goes, he's a mathematician, astronomer there. As I said earlier, he casts horoscopes for people to help make more money. Uh, during this time, and his mother is accused of being a witch and goes on trial for being a witch. And uh, there's a great book, which I highly recommend, called Kepler's Witch. It's, it's a collection of of historical facts, a lot of his letters about all this, great book, very, and very readable. But he studied the Ptolemaic and Copernican worldviews. He, he looked at the Copernican and said, this, this makes more sense. He even came up with a theological reasoning. He said, you know, the Father is the Son, the stellar, or, the Son is the Father, the stellar fear is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the intervening space. As he does along uh, this time, he's, he leaves Graz and goes to work with Tycho who was in Prague. He was a Dane, but he, he got involved, he moved to Prague. And, and if you look at all of Kepler's work, everything, he's always interested in trying to understand God's universe and how God orders the universe. And, and one of the first things he looked at was planet, planets. He said, is there any order in the, the orbits of these planets? And why are there six planets? And so he looked, and uh, I probably shouldn't try to explain this, but... <laughs> He put up a system, he, he said, okay, let's take the Earth's orbit and make it a sphere. And he said, let's place a tetrahedron on the outside of that sphere and then draw around a sphere that connects the points of it. But it turns out the distance works out to be the distance between the Earth and Mars. And then he puts a cube around that circle, draws another circle, and that plots out for, uh, was it Jupiter, the next planet, or Saturn, Jupiter, anyway. So he sees order there. And not only that, but there are five platonic solids that he uses. He does the interplanets as well. This is that ah, that's why there's six planets, because there are five platonic solids. So he sees, in this case, not very accurately, but he sees evidence of God's order. 
Then he starts looking at the orbits of the planets, and he makes a discovery that really shakes him up. Planetary orbits are ellipses. They're not circles. Why should that have bothered by that? Well, the heavens weren't subject to the fall. They were, they're God's perfect realm, and the perfect shape is a circle. So, again, we look back at this and say, eh. But for Kepler, it was a crisis of faith. He says, how can these orbits not be circular when, they're, when, when God is perfect? How come they're not perfect? And again, it's hard for us to see. I don't think any of us are troubled with that, but it troubled Kepler. So he, he says, I'm going I'm to try to find order, evidence that God's at work. So he goes and he finds his second law. There are three of them. It says, he says, gee, when these planets are further from the sun, they move slower. And if those times are all the same amount of time, the areas in those three wedges are all the same. He said, there's order there. there there's a plan these things behave in an orderly way. And the third law, which we probably won't, shouldn't bother with, but he says if you take the time it takes one of these planets to get around the sun, the time it takes to orbit the sun, and you square that, that is proportional to the radius cubed. And again, for us, we say, eh, no big, you know, what's the big deal? But that was a big deal for Kepler. Evidence of God's order. Evidence, you know, that there was logic, there was, and let's not look at that, that's the numbers, but we don't care. But here's where I want to look. Look, look at how Kepler reacts. This is, this is kind of, as a scientist, what I love. He said, 18 months ago, the light of dawn hits me. Three months ago, the light of morning. And then only a few days ago, the complete light of the sun has revealed this remarkable spectacle. Nothing holds me back. Indeed, I live in a secret frenzy. This joy of having discovered God's order. And look what he's, he's he, he, we're going to write this up. He said, I cast the die, I write the book. Whether it is to be read by the people of the present or of the future makes no difference. Let it await its reader for a hundred years. If God himself has stood ready for 6,000 years for one to study him. You know, he says, I don't care if anybody reads this right now. I don't care if I get any credit. But here I found a secret about God's workings that he's kept hidden for all this time. I wanted to become a theologian. For a long time I was restless. Now, however, behold how through my effort God is being celebrated in astronomy. He saw his work in the sciences as, as serving God. And two more. Anyone, more. The more anyone follows... People who hated, hated math, if you hated math, you may not like this. Anyone who falls in love with mathematics, the more fervent will be his dedication to God, the more he himself will make every effort to practice gratitude, the crown of virtues. And then finally, from the book Kepler's Witch, was he a scientist, a philosopher, a theologian? The answer is yes to all three. Scientific work for Kepler was always grist for his theological mill, a chance to praise God. And this, you know, I may, I may as a scientist, be overly romanticized with this but I like to think for those of us who are scientists this is the way we like to think about our work that it does glorify God so anyway that's that's all I have about Kepler let's move on to our final guy Galileo Galileo Galilei uh, he gets a telescope interesting Kepler asked Galileo to send him a telescope and he never would and, uh, although he 
he did get a hold of one, but one there's some people think Galileo was he knew about Kepler's work and didn't want to give him a leg up. So anyway, scientists are human beings, and Galileo believed he was. He noticed the moon has mountains and seas. We you know when the, when we first landed on the moon, where did we land? Sea of Tranquility. Uh, we obviously found out those aren't water, but that's what they look like through Galileo's telescope. There are mountains. Aristotle had said the moon was made of something called quintessence, whatever that is. The phases of Venus. You couldn't explain the, the fact that Venus had phases like the moon unless it orbited the sun. Again, going against the heliocentric model, moons of Jupiter showed that the Earth wasn't the only center of motion. And these sunspots, again, uh, suggested the heavens weren't the perfect place. So Galileo does this. He's got to get involved with the church. And one thing you need to understand about Galileo is he was not the he was really brilliant, but he didn't he didn't play well with other children. I have a paper here. Uh, this goes talks about how how brilliant he was. <clears throat> he was not a humble man, and upon those who disagreed with him, he heaped vitriolic sarcasm. He referred to his opponents as mental pygmies, stupid idiots, asses, buffoons, and as scarcely worthy of the title of human being. So this is not a guy who's going to play well with politics, okay? He, uh, and, and we probably all know people like this, a little bit on the arrogant side. So as we go through Galileo and the church, remember this. He is not... An easy guy to get along with. So the church was, it was, was reasonably tolerant. Some of the first objections is, is what you see through the telescope real? And, and in the church's defense, optics are fairly poor. Also, it's very common for street hustlers and people to use mirrors and things to deceive people. So this whole idea of using optics was, was questionable. And the other idea was, we mentioned before we're talking about, is it is his theory instrumental or real? An instrumental is you can use it for predictions, not really doesn't represent the world. And I used to do instrumental science. I mentioned last week there's a time in my career where we looked at molecular scale simulations trying to understand molecules. We use what's called classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, I believe, is real. You look at the electrons around an atom, you see how they interact, you do all this, and you do these great calculations and you get really usually very good answers. Now the problem is we were looking at molecules <coughs> we'd run calculations sometimes it would take on a really good computer two or three days to run and the problem is the, the scaling laws on these calculations I mean if I had a calculation that took three days to run I say I want to add another molecule just like that, that calculation now takes a month. They scaled at best as n cubed, and sometimes it's n to the fifth, which means it would take half a year if, if I really wanted to be accurate. So, so they're, really, they're really good descriptions of reality, but they, they're hard to do. Well, then we did classical simulations. And there you just kind of treat the molecules like they're big bunches of tennis balls hooked together, and you let them bounce around. Well, now instead of a doing, you know, taking three days to do a molecule with, say, 20 atoms, Overnight, I can run several thousand molecules, and not just, and I can calculate how they behave over time and stuff. So I always said, 
uh, quantum mechanics was was too good to be true, or was too good to be true. Classical mechanics were, or excuse me, this is true, too true to be good, and classical mechanics are too good to be true. You have to. It turns out though, we got really good results if you know if you're careful what system you study. Like I said, you can study thousands of molecules. You know what you're doing is not real, but it kind of works, so you do it anyway. So this is a big deal. The church was certainly willing to accept Galileo as being instrumental, but not as real always. So what, let's talk about what, how he gets involved in the church. 1616, uh, the Inquisition looks at his work, says heliocentrism is foolish and absurd and heretical, but it didn't do anything. About the same time, Galileo meets with Cardinal Bellarmino, a very, very uh, powerful cardinal, and Galileo, he said, look, you can study this, you can publish, but you, you can't say that this is really the way the world is. You can publish as, as a hypothetical, as an instrumental theory, but you cannot publish it and say this is the truth. And Galileo agrees. So 1623, things are looking up. Uh, Galileo is good friends with a man named Matteo Barberini, who becomes Pope Urban VIII. And he says, man, I'm in. I've got my, my good buddy as Pope. So he goes to Rome. He meets with, has several meetings with Urban. We don't know what went on. There are no records. But Urban VIII says, okay, you can write about this. And he doesn't even put the stimulation on that Bellarmino did. But he says, somewhere in that, in that document, you have to put this argument in. That since God is omnipotent, there could be multiple causes for a single phenomenon. This may be, what you're saying may be caused, but there may be other causes. Galileo says, okay, I'm good with that. And he publishes what starts off as a discourse on the tides. He changes it to a dialogue between two chief world systems. This dialogue, he puts three characters in the dialogue. There's a moderator. There's a person arguing for his theory. And there's a person arguing for the Ptolemaic system. And what he does, again, remember what kind of guy he is. All the arguments for the old system the character who argues to that, his name is Simplicio, which there, he can mean a simpleton or a fool. So that's the guy he has argued. Urban sees this and he's furious because that argument he, he, he wanted put in is on the very last page of the document and it's in the mouth of Simplicio. You know, Galileo, he's just kind of a jerk. And so the, the Pope is furious. And Galileo never told him about this 1616 agreement he had with Bellarmino to only publish this as hypothetical. So Galileo goes on trial, and most of us think he's on trial for his, his beliefs. Well, no. He's on trial for violating that agreement he made with, with Cardinal Bellarmino. That's what the church is trying him for, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, he denies believing in heliocentrism. They negotiate a plea bargain. Urban says, no way, we're going, we're, we're going full out, we're going to trial. So he goes to trial, he's convicted in June of 1633. He spends the rest of his life in house arrest outside of Florence. Now, what I would suggest to you is if Galileo hadn't been such a jerk, he might, he might have gotten through this with no problem. But it, again, he's this sort of egotistical guy who who, does, who calls his opponents bad names and and again isn't too politically savvy. By the way, you may know in, in 1979, John Paul II 
called uh, commission to reinvestigate. They admit making an error. Uh, they reaffirm the Augustinian principles, which we talked about last week, and the ultimate compatibility of faith and reason. So he kind of got uh, let off the hook 300 years later. Anyway, but the idea I want you to come away with here is, is the church was open, I think, largely to, to people looking at natural causes and trying to explain. And incidentally, Galileo's argument about heliocentrism was all wrong. It was based on the tides, an argument based on the tides, and it was totally wrong. He got the right answer for the wrong reason. But, you know, the, we, we tend to want to put, in, and I think there, there's plenty of bad light to go on the church here, uh, the Catholic church, but there, there's some bad light to go on Galileo as well. He didn't handle this well. He could, again, if he'd been a little more politically astute and probably not quite so egotistic, things might have worked out better. So this, again, this is sort of just the picture of the cosmology involved in this transition from pre-modernism to modernism. So modernism, we come up and we say, what, what's going on here? Well, I, and if you disagree with these, please let me know. This is kind of what I came up with. That there, there is objective truth. And that, that we, we can know that. I think modernism kind of assumes we can get there. So not always, but usually. Uh, how do we get there? We observe and we use reason. And again, from a religious point of view, I think for the, uh, the spiritual truth, we looked at, to Revelation. And the authorities tend to be governments and scholars. The church has not so much authority now. So that's, I don't know, is that reasonable definition of modernism? It, it, it works for me. So now let's move over to postmodernism. I guess I would argue that governments don't always uh, <laughs> aren't necessarily the source of truth. That's true. Yeah, they are they are authoritative, but they don't always hand out a lot of truth. <laughs> that's a good point. But anyway, so uh, and modernism has worked pretty well for for 300 years or so, but. It, Around the 1950s, we began looking and saying, well, I had some questions about all that. And modern, postmodernism is hard to, for me to define. It's hard. And part of the reason is because postmodernism kind of says, well, your definition is just because of the way you see it. I'm, I may see postmodernism a different way, and my, my definition is just as good as yours. Is that any postmodernists in the room can help me out? So here, I got a few. Broad skepticism, subjectivism, relativism, suspicion of reason, sensitivity to the role of ideology, asserting and maintaining political and economic power. Okay. Reject the possibility of reliable notion, knowledge, uh, denies the existence of universal stable reality, uh, frames aesthetics and beauties, arbitrary and subjective, reaction against scientific attempts to explain reality, recognize it. Reality is constructed as the mind tries to understand its own personal circumstances. Uh, skepticism, rejecting the ideologies of modernism, uh, causing questions, enlightenment, rationality. Targets uh, include universal knowledge of objective reality, morality, truth, human nature, reason, science, language, and social pro progress. Are, are those, they kind of differ, but are you, that's the, I think we get a mood that postmodernism, and postmodernism, I think right now, yeah, I, for if you're under 50, that's probably the way you view the world. Here, 
You're a teacher. Is that the way your students view the world? Yeah, more or less. More or less. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, they're going to have. They, if, they, if we ask them, they'd probably give us their own definition, which is a good. I quite understand that. What's present consensus? I think uh, it's not for me. <laughs> I said I'm a modernist. I, I think I think that's the way a lot of people look at the world now. Didn't you say that that's kind of a distillation? Yeah. And. I don't know anybody who's all those things, but I right, know a but, lot of people, plus yeah. my four children, who have some of those tendencies yeah. in their lives. Yes. Okay. There is a, it seems like there is an objective thing that happens that, that splits this, one of which is the uh, quantum physics that you mentioned running up into the, um, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Right? Ta da! And all of a sudden, the scientific project, as we've been thinking about it, didn't seem to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Heisen, Werner Heisenberg and the uncertainty principle, you hear a lot about it when people talk about postmodernism. Well, we can't be certain in physics. How can we be certain in anything? Well, this is the uncertainty principle. Ta da! <laughs> it says that the uncertainty in a particle's position multiplied times the uncertainty in its momentum will always be greater or equal to h bar over 2. And h bar is just h over 2 pi. Because I think quantum mechanics guys got tired of writing h over 2 pi, so they just said we'll call it h bar, and we just, it's easier to write. <laughs> uh, anyway, but what does that mean? Well, how, what, what kind of uncertainties do we deal with in life because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principles? Okay, h bar, our friend, is 10 to the minus 27 erg seconds, or that many erg seconds. How big is an erg? An erg is a unit of energy. A fly push-up. So we're talking about that fraction of a fly's push-up is the unit of h-bar. There's nothing you're ever going to see or do in life where Heisenberg's uncertainty principle will make a bit of difference. It's a wonderful theoretical concept. It's, and again, I won't talk about it, but if you think about Electrons are wave and particles. It makes sense, you know, that a wave doesn't have a position. Anyway, it's, it's teeny tiny, but philosophically, it's been a big deal. It's because it, there is uncertainty, and and don't. There's also something that that we talk about a lot now, called the observer effect. That has nothing to do with this. But the idea is that by observing a phenomenon, I affect it, and my. Uh, now, I don't think when Copernicus saw that nova that exploded tens or maybe hundreds of years earlier, his observing it didn't change that phenomenon. It may, his observing it may have decided how to interpret it. But anyway, the idea that when we observe something, we, we disturb the system, that's totally different from this. Now, so here's kind of, this may or may not be a good summation, but here's what I, you know. Uh, truth may exist, but... Can we really know it? The idea, you know, if, it does, if there is absolute truth, we may not be able to know it. Uh, and now we go revolution science, revelation science, reason, intuition. Uh, traditional authority sources distrusted. Your truth isn't my truth. You know, I think, uh, and I don't want to <coughs> insult anybody, but I think we see postmodernism in the anti-vaccine movement. 
There's absolutely no scientific evidence that vaccines do children harm. The guy who started this all has had his medical license revoked and can no longer practice. It was a, I don't know, he's a physician in England who, who promoted that, that, that vaccines caused autism. And his data was all false. Like I said, he's lost his license. He can no longer practice. Many chiropractors well, I, I, don't, I don't know, but I just I don't know about vaccines, because uh, anyway. So now, what are the implications of this when we as Christians go and we quote John fourteen six? I, I knew a young woman back when I was working in Oklahoma that I worked with, and she she was a religious, and she came about that close to becoming a Christian. But then the, the preacher said, this is the only religion that's valid. And she says, I'm not having anything to do with you. We, we have some very strong knowledge claims in Christianity that bump up pretty hard against postmodernism. And, uh, you know, I, and I'm sure Lauren and other, you're seeing this at Lipscomb, I, I would think, with students who, who look at these statements and say, well, I don't buy that, you know. This is, this is one approach to God. Why is it any more valid than any other? So postmodernism has some real challenges for us as Christians. Uh, and I wish I could say here's the answer. Uh, I don't, uh, but I don't have it. We, you know, uh, it's in, yeah, Richard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And, 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 yeah. and I should have mentioned, I, I didn't mention, I meant to mention this. Everything we're talking about today has been based in Western culture because Western culture is where this transition took place. That's not to say that there weren't, again, the, the, the Muslim astronomers and the Muslim scientists did incredible things that were isolated from what was done in the West. But this transition is a Western transition. But I'll leave you with one thought, and that is, if we survive the transition from pre-modern to modern, remember in the pre-modern world, everything was an act of God. That was, the, that's, that was the go-to position to explain anything. I mean, you could look for physical reasons, but you, didn't, but you could always go to God. If we survive that, we can survive this. Yes, Lauren. So I think it's what I like to, to think about when I'm trying to explain this is how so much of us and the capacities for human reason was shown to be bankrupt at the time of the World Wars. Yeah. Because Germany was thought of as this place where oh. scientific thought was, you know, at its highest. It's Liberal education system. Germany was, if all the places you'd say that can't happen, you would have said Germany's where it can't happen. So there's what that shows That's a good point. is that this, this idea that we can reason together without without need for something like revelation was shown to be there, there's like some sort of bankruptcy there, right? Right. And so some I think some ways that we can see postmodernism is actually a turn back to yeah. acknowledging our limits and acknowledging our need for for revelation. Yeah. So when my students say they don't like 
Christianity's exclusivist claims. I usually try to help them think about their own exclusivist claims because we all still operate with some some sort of meta narrative as our way of making sense of reality, some sort of standards for behavior, some sort of self-discipline even. I mean, so I like to say how secular humanists want to say, oh, the church has imposed all these kind of unfair rules on us. But they, st- but I say, but you still don't want to say we should all be at war with each other. You still think that we should be nonviolent. And they're like, well, yeah. I'm like, well, where do you get that standard, right? Like that's a, that standard comes from somewhere because it's a, it's yep. a very natural human urge to be violent, right? So you kind of just have to show people they have their own rules. Okay. We're out of time. I hope this has made some sense and uh, hope it's helpful. And next week we'll have Terry Briley here, a real Old Testament expert. Thank you.